Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Before today's show, I wanted to give a quick plug for the Competitive Enablement Show. Product marketers and competitive enablement professionals looking for more great content need to check out Clue's Competitive Enablement Show, powered by the Compete Network. Every week, host Adam McQueen chats with PMMs, Compete Pros, CEOs, and investors from the world of tech and beyond to find out the tactics and strategies they use to get a competitive advantage over the competition. You can even listen to a conversation I had with Adam when I was fortunate enough to be a guest for episode 60 of that show, talking about how the best go-to-market leaders carve out a competitive advantage. Catch season three of the Competitive Enablement Show, powered by the Compete Network, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Adrian Kaler. Adrian is a senior partner and founder at Take New Ground, an executive coaching firm, but his story goes far beyond that title. From early in his career in pediatric intensive care to creating community impact through social action in Chicago and even leading transformative projects for lifetime inmates, Adrian's path has been marked by profound human connections, relentless advocacy for others, and an unwavering desire to make a real difference. In recent years, he's shifted his focus to executive coaching where he's become a champion for talented individuals and founder-driven companies. He's done work for founders and executives from the likes of Nike, the Navy SEALs, and Virgin Hyperloop. Known for his straightforward approach and his knack for pushing people beyond their comfort zones, Adrian has a rare ability to help others boldly own their full capacity. This was a really unique episode. It's long, but I encourage everyone to listen to the whole thing in its entirety. The first 30 minutes or so, we'll go through Adrian's background which is not just interesting, it's frankly very impressive. And it sets the context for the second half of our conversation in which you basically sit in on a personal coaching session. A little warning, we do swear a little bit more than normal on this one, so earmuffs for the kids, please. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Adrian. I'm, I'm super excited to have you on today. Yeah, it's good to be here, man. Glad to connect with you. Yeah. So how, how are you? Are you based, you're based in California. So tell me a little bit about where you are in California. Yeah, I'm in Southern California, uh, in LA. I've been here 18 years before this. I lived in Illinois. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Illinois and then went to school, Central Illinois, and then lived in Chicago for a couple of years and then been out here since 2005. So this is home. Very nice. I'm actually going to be in San Diego in two weeks for an event and to visit some some friends. I'm looking forward to getting some coastal time in. San Diego's dreamy, man. Yeah, I, I've only been, I went really briefly when I was looking at schools. I think I looked at University of San Diego, uh, but that was ages ago and it was a one day event. So I, I haven't actually even been to a beach there. So very oh, much. Oh, that's great. And the, the vibe is so, I mean, it's not LA. It's very chill, right. very friendly. Yeah, they like to pride themselves in their breakfast burritos. Uh, that works for me. I know it's great. So let's jump right into it. You have a a very interesting career path, a varied career path. 
You've done a lot of community work, social action, mentoring yep. criminals, which we'll touch on, <laughs> and now coaching. And yep. I guess I don't even know where to start, but I would love for you to pick that start and just kind of walk us through your journey. Sort of, is there a sure. common thread that's pulled you through these different areas? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a varied background, that's for sure. And when I got into coaching, which was about a dozen years ago, I remember starting coaching and meeting new people and hoping they wouldn't ask about my background because that's a natural kind of like get to know you, small talky. So how'd you get into this? That kind of thing. I remember not being equipped to answer that question or essentially kind of living in shame about it. Like there was something mm. wrong with my varied background, really, just because, you know, in that moment, I was always trying to prove some credibility and it seems like a lot of coaching people were, I don't know, 20 years at IBM or something lame like that. But that seems like, I don't know, normal or something. Um, and that qualified you to be a coach. And it took me a while. I mean, now it is a varied background. Um, there's plenty of wandering in it um, and tons of joy in it and tons of exp I, I, it, it took me it took one of my clients. This was like six years ago, eight years ago when I. And he's a very, he was the youngest partner ever at Goldman Sachs, running a huge wealth management firm out here in LA. And I asked him why he said yes, because I you know, had to sit down with him and had a pretty robust conversation with him. And I said, well, why, why are we going to do this? Why are you choosing me? And he said, it's because your background, you've been all over the place and I need what you got. And I thought, okay, all right, time for a new story. So, right. um, Yes. Are there, are there themes? There's, there are so many themes. Um, the biggest theme would be that I, over the years, have really fostered my appetite to be with people in crisis and in like the most crucial conversations they've ever been in. And, you know, over, I experimented my way through, there's tons of different contexts of that. And I can just cover it very, very briefly. Um, Maybe I'll just do it for the listeners now. So I, yeah, you know, go for it. I, you know, was a kind of a science nerd as a kid and liked, you know, took every science class I could take, took every human science class I could take, every biology class, everything like that. And I loved it. I thought maybe I'd be a doctor because um, I liked that. And that was definitely some, I don't know, I don't know if there's an expectation. Uh, I have one grandmother who was kind of the, the toughest grandmother to, to deal with in the family. I liked her. She liked me. Um, but she always kind of wanted a doctor in the family. I think her, her grandfather was a doctor anyway. Um, anyway, went like pre-med into college and then realized I don't want to do this. I don't want to like do the seven years. I'm not that objectively driven, meaning like sitting back as like a nerdball scientist and like studying things and running research projects. I can nerd out on that. I just don't get a lot of joy out of that. Like proving something objectively isn't where joy happens to me. Interest happens for me there, but not joy. Joy happens for me when some something shifts in someone else. Some moment becomes 10 times as impactful as the previous moment. I don't know. You call that epiphanies. You can call that, you know, uh, all like the, I've always been drawn towards the epic, like the moment in the movie when the reluctant hero decides to say, fuck it, let's go. Yeah. And steps up and, you know, those types of moments, I've always been drawn towards that, like the epic, I would call it. So I, at that stage in my life and, and undergrad, was very altruistic um, and definitely wanted to make a difference in the world, came out of a very strong 
uh, faith background, I would say strong in the sense of it was definitely mine. Like I grew up in a faith background and I rejected a lot of that. Definitely a lot of the orthopraxy, like how people did all that bothered me. The beliefs didn't bother me at all, but how people, how it affected people and really the culture around it really bothered me. But I'd found a faith that really mattered to me, which was essentially living in this larger narrative that, you know, if we want to, we can be a part of the, the reconstitution of the world like putting things back together, like helping other, i.e. helping other people. And even bigger than that, from a policy perspective, you know, how do I make my life count? Oh, make the world better. That's a pretty good mission. And I love that. And so I'm 20, anyway, I'm in college and I thought, oh, I'll go, I'll go travel the world. I'll go, I'll go if there's a way. So anyway, I, I, I got picked up a nursing major in college and, um, which was great. Because I could get a job anywhere and I could travel anywhere and they were paying a lot of money back then, big nursing shortage. And I thought, okay, this is like Dr. Light. Okay, good. I can go do this and could be very entrepreneurial and then travel everywhere and go do, go get, go anywhere in the world, which was great. So picked up a nursing major and I, I, um, I hated it in the sense that the data was great. It's just the nursing people bugged me and I was, I was abnormal. I was a football player slash nursing major in college. So I didn't quite fit in, but I loved being with people. I loved the opportunity to like, you're a stranger and then you walk in in a uniform with a stethoscope. And then all of a sudden you're like the most trusted person in their world. And that's a very rare opportunity. And I took it as an opportunity. Like these people are trusting me and I don't know anything, but I'm good at faking it. And I do know that I can take them from where they are to a better place. I know that both physically um, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, across the board. I know how to help people move forward. So I dug it. Um, came out of that, worked, uh, was dating a chick in Chicago, moved to Chicago, worked at a children's hospital there and loved it and worked at like a resource, what they call the resource team. So I got trained to be the utility player. I could work on any floor in the hospital, which was, a, I didn't know at the time as much as I do now, but like, a, which was a rare opportunity. They usually don't let newbies go play the field. But it was yeah. really great for me because I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't know anybody when I started working there, obviously. But then on a daily basis, I would go in and approach a floor with issues going on. You know, they broke up a floor like into diagnoses and body systems that were broken. And so I would I would be the less educated, least educated nurse there because most of them have been specialists. And I didn't know anybody. And they're all like a team. They hang out all the time. So I had to become really good at learning on my feet. And really good at, at identifying resourceful people. Like, who's the smart one? I always try to find this out. Who's the smart one as far as, like, coworkers? Who's smart and who's helpful? Sometimes those are two different people. Sometimes it's the same person, and that's a bonus round. If you get the same person that's both really smart, knows everything, and really helpful, willing to help a guy out. So Real quick, really- how did you get the opportunity to work across these floors? It sounds like that you're recognizing now that was unique. Did you ask for that? Did someone see something in you? Did you know, did someone see something in you I, that made you I had applied. Yeah, I had applied for it. They took a handful of us new grads and let us do it. I guess I just, I, I interviewed well and yeah. showed that I I'd had enough confidence and gravitas that I could handle that tension. It's pretty tough because you'd go like four hours here, then they move you into, you know, you'd even during the day, you'd move two or three times. Yeah. So you had to become really good at retaining it, uh, grabbing information, dropping information, moving on, retaining. And this is all like very detailed life or death type shit. So, um, ha- uh, yeah, why'd they choose me? I think I just had enough confidence. Um, 
and I performed well enough. I ended up focusing on the pediatric intensive care unit, which is kind of the elite of the elite in the nursing world because it's like highest stakes and you got to be driven and very, very type A to work in there because you're going to like uh, deal with yeah. lots of, lots of moving parts and everything matters. So, um, a guy mentored me. I found a couple mentors in that space that were the best and, um, they let me hang out with them and learn from them. And, um, so I dug it, uh, but then I didn't want to do that long term, like, you know, to, to, to climb that ladder was very boring for me. Like, I don't know, are you going to go write policies or go like wear a suit and like, you know, all that stuff was boring to me. Um, so I caught wind of a guy, I was with a team involved in spiritual community. So I was involved with a team in India, went out there to do health clinics. And I was a musician back then, played music and all that kind of stuff. And, um, they gave us a, a, a speech by a guy named Erwin McManus, and it was very captivating. It was around the Judeo-Christian narrative, um, but it was like the most compelling speech I'd ever heard. And I thought, it was, and the title of the speech was The Barbarian's Way Out of Civilization. His thesis was Jesus was here to start a revolution, not to start a religion. And that's why they killed him. And so if you're going to like be a Jesus person— you got to cause some trouble, which I, at, for my 23-year-old years, I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds great because <laughs> um, I'm bored by all you people. So anyway, that's why I moved out to L.A. to come be a part, get to know this guy, Erwin. Came back from that India trip, read every book he'd written, and then found out about the faith community out here called Mosaic in L.A. And I thought, okay, this is a great spot uh, to hang out in my 20s. I figured I'd become like them, and I like, I like the fusion between faith and risk. And which they did, and they, we called ourselves the research and development arm of Christianity. So hmm. broke a lot of rules, um, like met in nightclubs, like anybody could come. This is before diversity and inclusion was a political statement. Like we were just into it, like come, but you know, belong way before you believe, which was just great. And we were doing stuff. This guy, Erwin, spoke around the world, a very well-known speaker in that little small world. And he didn't want to travel so much. So he'd send punks like me to go speak places, which obviously I didn't earn. I just happened to be the guy that was there and could hold the space and do a good enough job. So they let me stay and they let me do it. And then they, then they hired me and kept me on staff. And my, my passion was social action. So um, both on both sides of it, one is the world needs good people doing good things. And the other thing is, is that good people need great experiences to change their own lives. Right. So it was on both sides. So I'd build, you know, uh, volunteer teams to mobilize into action. So I spent most of my time sitting down with people and and uh, invigorating a conversation around meaning and around taking risk and doing something they've never done before. And it's like, hey, just trust me. Come down to the thing. You'll like this kid, you know, the homeless kid. I'm, I want you to mentor a homeless kid for six months. Would you do that? Which is very scary for most people. Um, and it was great. Because I'd always tell them, hey, give me an hour of your week. It'll be, it'll be your favorite hour of the week. Just give me an hour. Trust me. It'll be your favorite hour. It's what you'll talk about at all the dinner parties. And it was true. So mobilizing people and then you know, building bridges organizationally between us as a faith community of like 3,000 people and the city and um, the county and all. There's 30,000 nonprofits in L.A. And how do you decide where to mobilize people into? Anyway, that was my world for a long time. That was called Serve L.A., which I dug. Um, which is great. And I got to take people on lots of uh, uh, experiences locally and then lots of trips globally. So I could, I could now fuse, this is kind of the, the, one of the other themes. I could, nothing in our past is wasted. 
in my view. Like we could utilize it. So I could utilize all my medical history to now to go and make a difference when Katrina happened, when Haiti happened, when Pakistan's underwater. You know, I would just take teams to go do emergency response type work, which was great. And I always was just drawn towards it. It's one of those things. Maybe I'm just a reluctant leader, a very excited leader, but like, I mean, if nobody's going to lead, I guess I will. That was always my thing. Um, and it worked and I dug it and I was good at it. And through that, I helped a guy come to, uh, in his own faith journey. His dad was a billionaire. So he, he wanted to give away a lot of his money. Um, and I was very connected to the nonprofit world. So he said, Hey, would you help me figure out what to do? Um, which that sounded great. So I took him around the world and exposed him to all the needs that I knew and all the organizations that I knew. And, uh, after all that, he ended up wanting to give a second chance to people who have really blown it. So not just to do like blanket poverty stuff or water crisis or kind of some of those, you know, uh, the world is unfair and we should make it more fair type stuff. It's really, we ended up working with people that had intentionally blown it, which code for, um, at the end of the day, we ended up working in prison. Um, and so we worked with lifers in prison. I followed some nuns into the prison system in California, Soledad State Prison. And she got me connected to Sister Mary Hodges, got me connected to um, a group of about 25 lifers. So all these guys had murdered someone for the most part. Um, and they had the possibility of parole. So we came in. I met a guy named Dan Tacchini. Real quick, do- they had the yeah. possibility of parole after... Yeah, life life with the possibility of parole. You can go you can get life sentence without the possibility, like you're gonna right. die in there. Or, you know, picture Shawshank Redemption where you can go sit in front of the board, there's like four white people, probably not so white yeah. now, maybe. Maybe it's more diverse, hopefully, and sitting at, at a table and they ask you a bunch of questions. And if you seem like you've taken responsibility, you seem like you're gonna be a, a contributing force to society, they'll let you out after you know, they usually put, you know, you've got 18 to life with a possibility of parole. At the 18th year, you get to go sit down and like essentially have an interview, job interview. Yeah. Wow. And the most if, important one you'll ever have. Yeah. And most of them fail it. I mean, you know, cause, because they just, this would be the crux of our work with them. We came in and did like this three day leadership training called Ready for Life. Um, what I was saying was I'd met this guy, Dan Takini, who had been doing personal leadership transformational work. A friend of mine went through one of his trainings. When I was there to go the last day, they have people come in, celebrate all the changes and blah, blah, blah. Somebody had connected me to Dan and said, hey, I hear you're doing prison stuff. Dan does prison stuff. So Dan had been doing this consulting work at Microsoft and ESPN and fancy shit. But then on the side, he did gang intervention work, mostly out of the East Coast with a guy named Scott Larson with a thing called straight ahead in the juvenile system. And I said, Hey, we're, we're stepping in and going to do stuff with lifers. Can you teach us what to do? Cause we didn't want to do any kind of cheese ball shit. Didn't want to definitely didn't want to pander to these people. Wanted to make a big difference. And Dan's program ready for life is the, has got a green light to go in any juvenile, any juvenile facility in the U S it's the most studied of its kind recidivism is what you study in that world. Like how likely is someone to go back to prison when they get out? Most, I mean, I think the standard at least was back then 86%, 86 out of a hundred people when they get out of prison will come back. Wow. Why? Because they're criminal. Number one, criminal thinking that shows up in criminal behavior. Um, that's number one. Number two is the prison itself makes criminals. 
it's a survival environment, right? And when people are facing survival, they look out for number one and they lie and they cheat and they steal and they're violent and they got to be. It's all gang, you know. So if they're not a bad criminal beforehand, maybe they're in the wrong place, wrong time type of thing, which is never quite true, but let's just go with that. Then it, they train them to be criminals inside. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's what happens. And the guards are the worst gang in town. So anyway, I hired Dan and we started doing these trainings with these lifers. And every one of them, the next time they went to sit for the interview, they got out. Why is that? Well, the crux of that training is this, is this shift, which is the crux for anybody. Now, any, any kind of founder, CEO I work with now is what happens in our life when we shift from playing the victim to being responsible? Because if you think that life is happening to you and you think you're a passive writer and you think it's them or you think it's your history or where you came from or you think it's society or something outside yourself. If you think that's the case, obviously you're playing the role of a victim in your life and then you are now justified to be a criminal because it's happening to you. Now you can happen to somebody else. Um, And, and we would, you know, run the crux of the training was that, and that was, there was an exercise right in the middle. We call victim responsible that helped shift that for people and people would rather be free, um, than be a victim, but they just don't know the options because victimization is so normal for us as humans. Um, thanks to Freud. Um, so in the sense that Sigmund Freud tried to talk us into and talked millions of people into the fact that it's an etiological view. I am my past. That's why you sit down with any therapist and they say, Oh, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And we'll start at the beginning. Tell me about your childhood. And there's like all these connections between what happened when I was five and why at 25, I still don't trust people. Well, that's not a straight line and there's no responsibility in that conversation usually. So we got people here in real time and that they wanted to be in prison. That was the big thing. If they could say, I, I decided to kill that guy. Um, and I'm responsible, not the gang, not the fact that I'm black, not that the fact that I'm from Compton, not the fact that I didn't have a dad. Cause there's lots of people from Compton that didn't kill each other. There's lots of black people that don't kill people. There's lots of people that don't have a dad that don't kill people. You chose to kill people. Let's talk about that. So, so I know real, real quick. So you said in the middle of that training is when you get to that point of basically yeah. helping people ultimately accept responsibility for actions yeah. and who they are and not yeah. blaming others. Right. Is there like a, I think a lot of people have that mindset. You don't even have to look at prison, right? I mean, a lot of people kind of put themselves in that, in those oh, yeah. places. Is there like a quick tip or what, what was that point of the training that kind of fl- flips the switch? It's probably much more complicated than that, but. Well, it is, it is, and it fits inside of a context of the whole training, and we lead into it and lead out of it. But that exercise themselves, um, we have them sit down knee to knee with somebody, and we talk about what a victim is and what it and and what it means to be a victim. We talk about that and picture me up standing up with a chart and what that is, and then I we say, you know, tell the story of your life from up until now, and tell the three stories from your life. Um, and you just have them do that. So person A tells, and they just tell it however it is for them. Great. Okay. And then we have them tell it as the victim, as the victim. Now, now your job is to tell those three same stories, but you've got to prove to your partner that you're the victim in the story. You got to lay it on thick, be really dramatic. Your job is to prove it, that you're not responsible at all. And so we have them do that, which people are really good at. It's really dramatic. It's very funny. Okay. 
Um, and these are like tough, tough motherfuckers, you know, just like rough yeah. dudes and they're all crying. It's great. And then we pause and say, what was your experience? As you told the story that way, what was your experience as you told it? And it's always universal. I feel really weak. I feel alone. I feel angry. I feel resentful. I feel, you know, I want to kill myself. You know, it's like that's there's there are real fruits to a victim story emotionally, experientially. And so we, we pay attention to that, what it's like to be the victim, not to like like to play the role of a victim, really. What's that like? And what's the fruit of that? And then tell the same story, same three stories. You got two minutes, tell the same three stories. But now your job is to convince the other person that you're responsible. We talk about what responsible is. Um, not blaming yourself, but I'm responsible. I made choices. And you tell the same, same three stories that way to prove the other person. Harder for people to do. Um, and you usually have to go back in time. So it's not like I got to talk about the drug bust that went bad. I got to talk about now when I decided to get in the car that day and I knew I shouldn't have gotten in the car. I did anyway. I know this guy's trigger happy and I knew, you know, it's going to be trouble or I got in the gang. My grandmother wanted me to move in with her. Instead, I got in the gang. You got to go back in time to get responsible. And then we gauge what's the experience like to be responsible. And resoundingly, the answer is free. You know, I, I get it. I did this. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I might still be mad at myself a little bit because there's some regret because they've missed their kids' lives and missed, you know, miss out on life a lot. But all of a sudden, I'm not in prison anymore. I'm in prison physically, but emotionally, experientially, spiritually, I'm no longer in prison. Now I'm free. Now I'm no so longer paying. So it's the juxtaposition of you start by playing the victim, explaining like to this other person why it's not your fault, and then immediately yep. move into the acceptance and. The, and the it's an experiment to do that right on. Yeah. It's an experiment because most people are not experimenting towards responsibility. I mean, as humans, we don't do that very freely unless we've learned that that's a way to generate freedom. Hmm. So to practice being responsible because it'll feel really inauthentic because we're so used to telling the victim story and getting people's sympathy and what we now call empathy, um, which is usually sympathy um, and feeling sorry for ourselves and like, you know, getting accomplices to the story. But you got to stand. If you're going to be personally responsible, you're required to stand alone because you're saying it's me. It's not the group. Yeah. It's me. It's individual. Um, so it's a, it feels really weird. Feels really inauthentic. Um, and because for most of us, we don't practice that. Um, we like to excuse shit. So yeah. Um, yeah, that was the big shift. So I did that. I did that. It was awesome. So my first coaching clients were murderers in prison. It was great. I was scared to death. I didn't know what I was doing, but here I was. I had a mentor that was really great out of that. Um, the, the guy that funded the, funded the organization wanted to really focus on this group into the future, which I wanted to expand and go to different prisons and shit, go to the White House, you know, make, make systemic changes. He wanted to really focus, which is wonderful, which just meant that I was going to get bored and let me get out of here. So I set everything up, got the board in place, got the, got the employees in place got the programs in place. And then I got to go jump again and figure out what I wanted to do. So I was like, I was nurse guy, then pastor guy, and now the nonprofit executive guy. Um, but, and I could have gone back into any of those worlds easily. Um, but I, I got that like being involved in these types of conversations, these are pretty extreme and gritty conversations. This, this was the environment 
that I got to fully express myself. Meaning, I, you know, I'd always been a pretty extreme guy. I like life on the edge. I'm drawn towards risky stuff just because it's more fun for me. Um, and I'm kind of get after it like pretty intense uh, when it relates to how most people live their lives. Like I don't do small talk very long. I like to get after like what's the real important conversation. Like, you know, I'm the guy at a at a dinner party that somebody will be with for like an hour and say to me at the end, I've never told anybody that. You know, like I like that. I like deep conversations. Um, that's fun for me. Um, and and healthy for me too. I always needed that myself. I always felt pretty alone in the world. Um, just because there seemed to be some deeper stuff going on that nobody's talking about. We can talk about the Dodgers or the Rockies all day long, but who gives a shit? You know, right. what's life about? How do we heal ourselves? How do we make a difference? Like those are the things that always invigorated me and troubled me. Those that that context. So I I had gone through coaches a coaches training program and went there every self-help thing I could go through because I'm a junkie for that stuff, as you can imagine, and um, jumped out and just started coaching. And this was, um, you know, kind of before all the, I mean, there's so many coaches now, which is all funny. Um, people go to like some kind of online class and learn how to do Facebook ads. I never did that. I, the, the training I went through was with this guy, Dan Takini, and he talked about presence. He talked about who you are. And if you get that straight, you can re- figure out how to run the business. And um, anyway, it really connected with me. And I jumped in and got a lot of clients right away, which most people with with coaching certifications have all those letters behind their name, but no clients. I was the opposite. I didn't have many letters at all. Didn't need them. Um, had lots of clients. How did you get your first clients? Um, my first client was the guy that used to work for me. Um, my second client was a gal named Krista. Krista's a ball busting brand person, and she, and um, but let me answer your question better. That's who I got. How I got it was. Asking, asking questions. You know, I'd talk about, oh, I'm doing coaching now. They'd say, what's that? I have to make up an answer, you know? And, um, and so, you know, coaching, I'm, I'm helping people take big leaps in their life. Maybe I answered it something like that back then. And um, so people then say, oh, that's cool. But I would naturally say, what big leap are you taking? And they'd be shocked or, and not have a good answer for it. I'm like, well, I don't know. How are you going to feel in a year if you don't take any risks this year? There's an answer to that, which is shitty. I'm not going to feel good. Okay. Do you want some help? Hey, why don't we do this thing? Just for, I just signed people up for six weeks back then. Six weeks, $600. So 100 bucks an hour, which felt like a million dollars to me. $600 for six weeks. I'll help you take a leap. And um, then it's so all better. An hour a week. An hour a week. Six yeah. weeks, an hour a week. And um, then they'd refer to me to all their friends. Krista in particular, she referred me, she had a branding agency, so she referred me to all of her branding clients. And some of my key, even one of my key members of my team now was one, was one of her clients named Chad Brown. He runs our podcast. Um, and he ran a film company back then, like a, uh, event cinematography company. And, um, he and his business partner, uh, at the time, his name was Drew and they didn't want to work together and they were busy, busy, not talking about that. They were like trying to make it work and, you know, new icing on the shit sandwich. I'm like, you guys just don't want to work together. Do you ever talk about what it would be like to break up? And that started the whole cascade of conversations. They broke up soon after that and both very happy after the fact. So 
Yeah. So I got clients by like asking the questions that were dying to be asked, but nobody had asked them before. And then just holding the space, like non-judgmental, very amoral, like, let's just talk about it. And when, when you build that type of rapport and trust with people, they want to go with you and they yeah. want to, you know, cause they trust you. And, and what year was this when you, when you first started? This would have been, I keep saying 12 years ago. It's probably longer than that now. That would have been 2000. No, that was 2010. So that was 13 years ago. Anyway, that started. And then, you know, I've coached a lot of people my age and a lot of middle manager type people um, that could reach that price point. And then eventually I got my first corporate client, which was a big multinational architecture firm. And um, they, uh, you know, it's so always so surprising inside corporate America, how little people talk about meaningful things. So they hired me and immediately gave me 14 of their brand new vice presidents and, and their like rising star program. And Hey, can you come in and run this thing? And can you coach these 14 people? And can you do these offsites? And I of course said, yes, scared to death said, yes, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but it worked out. And then it was, it was, uh, I was going to say lights out after that. It's lights on after that. It, it continued to evolve and Nike became a client and coached a ton of VPs there. And and I just loved it. And I, I stayed in the cor- at the corporate space because they have a lot of money. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of dead people there. So if you're, you know, calling people back from the dead, getting people into a vital conversation, which usually means now I'll tell people, hey, the questions for me are you, how much truth can you handle? There's an answer to that question. How much truth can you handle? And how much courage can you summon? Those are really the two key conversations if you want to work with me. And how, do people know the answer to those questions? Uh, they have some kind of lighthearted answer, but then we'll see. You know, they've yeah. got a low bar answer for it um, because they've not asked themselves that. And and sometimes people sit on one side or the other. You know, like now I coach entrepreneurs, and they're usually pretty risky and take a lot and and take courageous action, but they're not up for hearing all the feedback. <laughs> Right. And because they're used to being the most important person in the room, kind of the revered person in the room. And and I don't give a shit. Meaning, I mean, I do. What I mean is that I I tell them all I'm a fierce advocate for you. So you might not want to work with me because that means I'm going to be really honest with you about what I see. And I could be wrong about it, but because I'm just in my interpretation as well. But I'm going to give you everything I got. And I'm going to put this relationship at stake every time we talk. Like I'm going to say shit that's not polite. And yeah. I'm not going to do that for the sake of some being bombastic or something. It's just that human adults, smart, ambitious, driven adults, we don't learn unless we're in crisis. And you can generate interpersonal crisis, and that's really helpful. Meaning like, oh, wow, this guy's asking. That's a question I don't want to answer. And then I get to decide, do I want to answer this or not? And that there's all these crossroads moments that call people out of their slumber, and get people to the moment, if you will. That's kind of a cliche term now. I mean, get people right here. Like, life's happening right here. Right here, right now. And we could either go be all in or not. And my commitment is for you to be all in. Which is going to require a lot more risk than you're used to doing. You have to get off of all your victim stories. And get into some really bold action. In order to create the life you want. And you don't have to create that life. Just don't work with me. Because I'm going to be a pain in the ass. Because I'm advocating for that. Um, yeah, it's like, so, it's like a, having a physical trainer. Like you got to really push yourself. That's you right. Know, and, and stretch yourself, you know, make yourself uncomfortable. 
a trainer's not going to be like, oh yeah, you know, can't do another sit up. Oh, you you know, you're great. Like no you're worries. Yeah, yeah you're exactly. So, all right. So you mentioned you're now focused on entrepreneurs and, you know, founder driven companies. And yeah. when we chatted previously, you said founder driven companies where there's, there's no place to hide. So are you working exclusively with founders and what do you mean by like, there's no place to hide and why, why do you look for that? Yeah, pretty exclusively. I'm thinking through in my life or in my client roster. Now I keep around 10 people on the roster, um, and give the rest, to my team. Um, you know, I've been coaching a Navy SEAL. He's obviously not an entrepreneur. I coach a guy that leads the sales for the largest wealth management firm in the the country. Um, so there are some X factors and it's usually around appetite and chemistry. I'll work with some folks like that if I like what they're up to and if I like them and if I feel like it's going to be, um, very vigorous and rigorous. Uh, if they're up for that, then great. If they want to just play some kind of corporate game with me, I, I'm not your guy. Yeah. Right, so you're so, trying to eliminate that. So that's what you're looking for. Like, yeah, really- I'm looking, I'm looking yeah. for vitality, man. I'm looking for yeah. vitality. Who's really teachable. Who's really hungry. Um, who's willing to like get honest with themselves. Um, and I test that out in the first call, like, you know, almost on every single call, I'll say something to, you know, hey, Tammy, we've known each other about 11 minutes. Can I take a big risk with you? And then, of course, we'll say yes. And then I say something that's pretty that, – that a new person would never say to them. And it might just be an observation. It seems like – and I fill in the blank – something that would, for most people's ears, might, might feel like a judgment. It's not for me. It's just an observation. And that thing I'm observing is eating their lunch in my observation. And I want to see if they're willing to look at what they don't want to look at. You know, because in general, our, our work is around getting the conversations that are under the table on the table and they're under the table for a reason. We borrow from an old, old spiritual history, this group called the Desert Fathers, picture like early Christians, whatever. They had this metaphor that we use all the time that was called hugging the cactus, which is like the thing you don't want to get close to. It's time to embrace. And especially with high functioning, talented people. That's where the gold is because they're better than everybody else. Objectively, they're smarter than most people in their organization. They're better. They are more more effective and more efficient than most people. Um, That's just true. And so they're used to complaining that other people don't think like they think and don't do what they do instead of putting themselves in a growth context where where they're choosing to be a rookie meaning they're choosing to take leaps outside of their comfort zone, which a lot of them is things like dealing with conflict, like having conflict conversations, like um, delegating responsibly instead of just firing people all the time. Like, you know, um, taking some kind of big leap, some of them like raising money, um, so anything that like, makes them feel on their edge and makes them feel uncomfortable. Once they do that, they have a lot more compassion for other people. So, no place to hide. Uh, I think that's what I mean by that. It's, it's, you know, the core of my work with folks is to, for them to live their word. So first off, they got to give their word, like get clear about what their promises are and where they're going, despite the momentum, despite the market, despite whatever story they've got about it. What's their word? What, 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 I don't, we don't set goals in my work. We, we, I say, what new results are you committed to create? So it's not like pie in the sky. Wouldn't it be nice if we hit, you know, double their income neck? No, no, no. Are you committed to that? 
to doubling your income. Okay, good. That's the result you're committed to create. Wonderful. Now, now we've got a ball game. Now they're on their edge. Now there's something that, that they probably can't pull off unless they resource new aspects of themselves or resource their team in fresh ways. Um, so there's lots of victim stories in there that come up naturally. Yeah. Uh, so no place to hide just because I'm, I'm paying attention more than anybody else in their entire life has paid attention to them. I'm listening very distinctly and all of our team, if we do anything really well, we notice everything. And we yeah, so pay I want attention. to touch on your team a little bit, actually. So yeah. you obviously started probably as a solo coach, right? Doing this effectively, being great at it. At what point did you think, you know, I actually might be able to create a company and a firm around this. Why, you know, why did you think that way? And how, how yeah, how have you sort of evolved from being a solo practitioner into building a firm, which is take new yeah. ground, correct? Take new ground is my firm now. Yeah. So I started out on my own, got a bunch of clients. I had a best friend at the time. His name was Jason. He's a smart guy, content guy, like loves to come up with frameworks and ideas. And he's a writer and a speaker and that kind of guy. Um, uh, early, I, I partnered with him, um, which was great because he could kind of be the upfront guy and entertaining guy and da, 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 And I could be like the gut punch when it was time in the training. Um, and that we did that for a couple of years, which was great. And his, that company is still going. Um, I sold my stock to him and moved on. Um, it, that didn't work because he and I, uh, differ in the, uh, around how to be in the room with people. So there's lots of c- coaching firms and teachers out there that want to go teach content and that's, but that's entertaining and people will buy that shit and it's great. It's entertaining. It just doesn't change people's lives. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go deeper always and wanted to ask a lot more questions than he wanted to. And there's nothing wrong with that. He's got his own style. Uh, and it's probably different now. I haven't talked to him in a while, but back then he wanted to like, he was there to say something, and I was there to have a conversation. So we ended up breaking it off for lots of reasons, but that was the core reason is that philosophically we were in the room to do different things. So I went back out on my own for a while then and then reconnected this guy, Dan Tacchini, the guy that came into prison. Dan uh, is an elder statesman. He's 67. He's been in this world for 40 years. His first coaching company was called The Coaching Company. So he was there in the beginning. Um, back before coaching even was a thing and world-class trainer. Um, he's like the best in the world at it. When I, when you think about like a weekend event, um, and there's a guy that's facilitating it, uh, Dan is, is distinct from anybody out there, um, and does it more deeply than anybody out there. I, I joke that he's like, if mother Teresa and Yoda and Tony Soprano had a baby, <laughs> that's Dan Tacchini, right? So, so very compassionate, brilliant philosophically and then he'll get in your face as soon as he needs to you know so uh very committed um as a practitioner so he and i we always had i hired him to come do all those trainings in prison so he and i always had affinity he saw in me what i didn't see in me um uh and always it's embarrassing a little bit but he always calls me his babe ruth like his like whatever his next guy and and that's kind of true in the sense that like I'm not as smart as he is, but my instincts are as strong. Um, so anyway, I chose to partner with him because first off, his legacy is, is fantastic. His understanding of the concepts is otherworldly. Um, but then also it's a mentor-mentee relationship. And we're like best friends now. So is he um, the one that pushes you? I was going to ask you this later on, but maybe this is the opportune time. Like You seem to be the person that can sit down with leaders, make them uncomfortable, answer questions that they've probably never had to answer 
who's that for you? Yeah. Dan's that way for me for sure. Yeah. He, um, I mean, he, uh, his understanding of, of humanity is otherworldly and he's extremely well read. Um, and can reference all this types. I mean, and he's just a learner. He loves, he's, he always pushes the envelope at what we ought to be talking about in culture. And he's very gutsy and very committed. He's 67. So like, this is his final run. So he's here to make a count. Um, and he knows his spot. He actually loves being number two. He wants to push me out front and he likes to be the guy in the room. So it's good for me too. Um, he runs all these trainings. He wants me to be the head trainer. We co-train these things now and we have very different style. Um, but he pushes me to go take more leaps, take more risks. And that obviously works for him as well. Cause I, we can create a big company together and yep. there's aspects like the business development side of things. I'm really good at, um, meeting a stranger on the plane and they're, they're a client by the time we land in Denver, like that <laughs> happens a ton for me. Um, and, uh, he knows how to run a team. So he pushes the team life. Like he's naturally kind of the CEO of the company and thinks about t internal development. I think about external development. Um, mm. and he's just an advocate for me. He's always believed in me. Um, you know, uncomfortably believes in me and that's great. And everybody ha I better have somebody like that in their life. And he'll call me on shit. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, I, I don't mean that in a negative way at all. He's so committed to integrity. Um, and respects me, even though I'm 30 years his junior. He, uh, we don't miss it. We don't miss anything around him. He's always checking me on things, um, which I deeply appreciate all the time, just because I can, you know, be missing stuff, and he's noticing things all along the way. So he's the guy that pushes me a lot. Yeah, um, I've heard that a lot of companies, or it's a, it's a concept, I, I suppose, where people are encouraged when they're thinking about, you know, creating a company to to find a co-founder. Because there's this yep. dynamic between two that tends to be more effective. Companies are more successful. I'm a, I'm a solo founder, um, yep. so uh, you know it's an interesting question for me to ask. But in your experience being a leadership coach, do you find yourself working with a lot of companies with two co-founders or solo co-founders, or I'm sorry, solo founders? What's your take on that? Yeah, uh, most they're mostly solo founders. Okay. Um, I think as a trend or as like a norm, I think it's mostly solo founders. So you're in good company. You're not doing anything <laughs> wrong. Um, but it is good. I mean, even if someone's not a, a co-founder, it's, it is important to have someone that's really watch uh, really behind the scenes and having all the deep conversations because every founder I know, not saying this about you, they're all maniacs. You know, they're drawn towards mania, like fast action, ambitious, take on the world, I don't care what happens. Who cares about the collateral damage? This has to be done. And part of that's the mystique of the, I think, kind of the license of being an entrepreneur. It's kind of you get to you know, celebrate how dysfunctional you are um, and be proud of it. Um, but it's good to have someone that's actually holding you accountable, holding you to, to take account of what's the real long-term vision here and what kind of, you know, at some point, hopefully sooner than later, you need to ask yourself, what kind of culture am I creating versus what kind of widget am I generating? You know, like, are you, are you really creating an environment in which leadership can happen? Mm. Or are you just building a thing and you're trying to sell it? Two very different conversations. So if a, if a founder who's operating as a CEO 
is just trying to get the product out the door, which makes sense, and hiring people to do jobs, okay, makes sense. That's not sustainable long term. You need to like set up a whole culture where team life can happen and leadership can happen. Leadership is a phenomenon, right? It's an occurrence. It's not like a role. It's not a title. It's not a position in the company. Leadership is happening. It's a thing. It's a gerund. So, um, yeah, it's good to have somebody really close to you. It could be a co-founder um, uh, or it doesn't have to be a co-founder. You could have a, a board member that's like that. But uh, most – because the mystique around founder and the kind of the essentialness of founder – most people train other people to leave them alone and not to question them. And that obviously works from an ego perspective and a survival perspective. And it's quote unquote faster and all this uh, types of justification. It just doesn't work as well as, oh, I've got a natural setup of checks and balances here. And I know that I'm crazy from time to time, you know, because if you do like the shadow work that Young would say or, or hug the cactus or know your dark side, we'd call it, or, you know, in any room we're talking about now, because we came out of the prison system, we'll say something like, we're all criminals, and some of us are just more arrestable than others. And that's all true, right? We're all this paradox. We're both brilliant, and we're stupid. And we're courageous, and we're cowardice. And we're, you know, virtuous and honest, and we lie. Like, I, I say, we all do that. Welcome to humanity. And if someone can see and own their dark side, that becomes their friend because if I yeah. know my evil sides, if I know my self-justifying sides, when somebody on my team starts doing that, first off, I'm not apt to judge them because I own it. I've got the t-shirt, number one. Number two is I want to hear it. I'm not surprised by people's criminality. It's going to happen. People are going to cover their own ass. They're going to look good in their own eyes. They're going to like make shortcuts just for themselves. And they might or might not be in that conversation. But if you're in that conversation with yourself and checking yourself on a daily basis on am I living in integrity, like meaning am I integrated? Am I honest about my dishonesty, which is the best we can do anyway? Am I authentic about my inauthenticity? If I'm doing that, then other people, when they show up like that, I'll go have the conversation as a gift to them, not as a stick. Yeah. As a gift to them where it's like, hey, I noticed, you know, you're really great, man. And but I noticed that you've not been filling out this form that's about, I don't know, I'm just making something up. I, you're, you're not, don't, like, this client's going sideways and you didn't tell me till like two weeks after. What's going on? And most people don't have that conversation or they have it like, do this instead of what's going on behind the scenes. Like, moving forward, I need you to tell me early when something's going sideways so I can help you and I can intervene with you. And I'm a resource to you. And if you don't tell me that stuff early, then we got to deal with the shit buffet instead of the shit sandwich. So yeah. let's talk about it, man. But that's criminal. Like that's like covering up, right? I'm going to cover my own ass in order to preserve myself instead of being all in, which you're willing to fail in public with other people for the sake of the future. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So I pulled up to my other screen here. I wanted to chat about our principles at Fluvia. So we established, or I should say, I established three principles based on my own personal beliefs um, that I wanted the company to inherit. And as we grow, I want to add to them. Um, I got a little bit of this from reading Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and also sure. working at Amazon who had, who had established principles. And one of those is accountability drives progress. Um, yep. Mistakes and problems can be managed to, produ to produce progress, embrace responsibility, and be an owner. And uh, that situation that you just mentioned, like things weren't going well, you didn't tell me, then this happened. Like 
that's ex- that's happened before at Fluvio. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, all the time. accountability drives progress is exactly what I'm trying to get at there, where everyone should be comfortable, you know, coming to me with a lot of problems. And I'm not going to have all the answers, but I want to help you work through it. And I want to make sure that we're producing an environment of accountability. And And I do that too. Like I'll go through every quarter, we go through our sort of performance and we look at revenue and client health and all of that. And I, I'm trying to also elevate where I've made mistakes and acknowledge those and then talk about yep. what we're going to be doing moving forward. So I think that is, right. anyway, we've built this principle-based operating system at Fluvia. Yeah. Hopefully helps <laughs> helps me become accountable as well, given I don't have this other co-founder. Although I now entrust my team to, to come to me like a, like a co-founder would. Yep. Do you have a board in place? Uh, no, we're too small to have that. It's just me. Okay. Yeah. But maybe over, maybe, maybe over time. Um, there, sure. yeah, there's a couple. And then I have, um, I'm a member of a, a founder community and we have this cohort that meets monthly with a moderator that sort of, we go through what's going well, what's not going well, both personally and professionally. I just started doing that about three months ago and it's been helpful, I think um, sure. for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I mean, a lot, we're in that conversation a ton with founders around governance, um, which is essentially CEO accountability, right? Like somebody in your corner, you got to put together the right team and you got to put together the right rules of engagement and get the right people in place to do all that. But man, it can be such a, everybody's scared of it and nobody yeah. wants it until they get, they get the right, they get the right team in place and, and set the norms up. And it takes a little bit to get that wired in. Um, but if you do that really well, man, it's like fuel in the tank. It's um, yeah. it's really great. I, I love the principle based approach. We talk about principles all the time because okay. they don't they don't change, um, and they're portable, right? So they they exist in lots of uh, many different contexts, right? So if our principles are true for us, um, like we don't usually do like core values type conversations. We can do that. People love to do that. That sounds great, um, but. The core values, they're romantic. You really want yeah. principles that are going to drive thinking. Like, how do we think about these things? If my principles are right, then in any meeting, the principles are there and they are the filter by which we're listening at the table. And then they help us make decisions and then they help us wonder about did it work? And are we, you know, anyway, all the things exactly. That we're we're talk on the about. same page. Mine are not like what we've established at Fluvio. Ours are not, it's not our mission and our values and what we stand for. It's like, this is how we operate. This, these right are on. The- these are, this is who we are as a, as a group of people and as a community. We have speed matters, accountability drives progress, positivity rules, and determination is the difference. Those are not values that we show off. It's like, this is yeah. what we believe, and this is how we're going to be effective. That's right. I just did a, a one-day off-site with a, with a new company, a guy, Josh Geigel, who started uh, Virgin Hyperloop. I met him probably five years ago when he was at Hyperloop. He was a founder, CTO at the time, moved him in the CEO role. He exited and um, then was with him during the interim time. What was he going to do now? You know, that was successful. Um, and what's he going to do now? And now he's starting a defense company called Gambit. And we just sat down and got clear about the vision and the and the mission, vision and mission and values. But we define values like that, like how we're going to be with one another. That's what values right. are. Not what sounds cool to put on a website, which has how yeah, most people PR do value friendly. statements. Exactly. Yeah. No. How, how are we going to hold each other? Like be with one another. Like what matters here? What's it mean to play on this team? And and hopefully 
we're not messing around. We really mean this. And if you don't want to do this, great. It just means go play somewhere else. Like, I love you. Go on somewhere else. It's okay. You're going to be really frustrated here because I'm not getting up. If you're a leader taking a stand for something, then I'm not going to get off these. These are really going to be true for us. And I'm going to do them imperfectly, but really committed to doing them perfectly and living them out. And uh, yes, yeah, so we, we speak about those the same way. That I think that's, that's where the power is, right? Because that's the yeah. standard. And then the people know... I mean, people love to worship psychological safety, which is, I could do five hours on that, but, um, and why that's a fool's errand, at least the way most people think about it. One aspect of it that's helpful is predictability. You want people to feel safe, help them know what the game is. What are the rules of engagement here? And what am I held to? That's safer, quote unquote, I don't use the word at all, but that's safer than than most people because it's unpredictable and the brain is searching for predictability. That's the number one thing in the brain is what's predictable. And we will tend to create, to see the moment we're in based on the past. If it reminds us at all in the past, we'll call it that because it saves us energy cognitively Mm -hmm. and we'll save calories if we think that this is like that. But therefore we stay in the past and we stay in a default setting. And so anything new looks like a threat if it's not what the old is. So, if you're going to actually real quick on this topic, I want to get your take on this because this reminds me of a, a topic that I've, I've talked about with a couple other folks on the show, generally with with founders who've come on. Um, yeah, and it's I have struggled historically with answering the question of like, what do you, what's your vision for Fluvio three or five years from now? Yeah, and I understand that there's people probably internally that want this vision that they can just like you know, construct the path to that. Um, But I struggle with it because I like things being a little bit more open-ended. I don't know what we're going to be doing in three years. I know what our operating principles are now, and I know what we're doing now, but I also want to leave a whole lot of wiggle room to evolve. Yeah. But I also know people want predictability. They want to know, you know, what, what we're going to be in five years. And so I, I struggle with that. Do you, coach leaders um, and founders that they should be establishing this vision and work back toward or work toward that? Or yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the whole like, where do you want to be in five years is a funny yeah. question. Because n- number one, here's what we know is whatever you're going to say is full of shit anyway. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, but it, it's good to have an eye on the horizon like that. Like there's probably three or four versions of the future of Fluvio and you're cool with maybe yeah. those versions. It's good to get clear about that on like, hey, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And you confessing that is just conf- is being in alignment with reality, you know, because you don't know what it's going to look like anyway. And we always say nothing ruins a plan like reality. So you can, you can have a plan. And here's what we want to be. Here's what I think we want to be. I want to exit in five years, for example. I want to exit. Um, but I don't know. It might be three years. It might be five years. It might be 10 years. I don't know. And that's good. It's good to be honest about that. And people that can't deal, people that can't deal with that ambiguity can't really deal with life because you don't know anyway. So they'd want to have some kind of fantasy about where they're going because it gives them some kind of sense of security. And if there's, it's all security, then there's no courage needed anyway. And you don't want those people anyway. At least I don't want those people. I want people who are going to stand forward with courage and go create something. So maybe they could blow your vision out of the water. That would be awesome. Exactly. Yeah, but you do want to enroll them. So what you don't want is to stand confused. Because if you don't, if you're committed to not having an answer, 
there's a, there's definitely an aspect. Here's, I'm going to assert this, and it doesn't have to be true for you. But I'm going to assert that if, I, if I'm committed to not having an answer, I do that to cover my own ass a little bit. Yeah. So I, I'd get an answer. And knowing that it might be off, knowing that I might change my mind, and I've got license to do all that because I own the place. But here's my answer today, and keep checking in with me, and we'll see yeah. what evolves over time. So confusion has its cost. So I wouldn't be like if I if I say I don't have a vision, I actually do. My vision is just confusion. I don't. A chaos is the vision, and whatever happens is the vision. So because we always have a vision as mammals, we all live yeah. in intention. So at least being clear about what I think it's going to be, and and you want to have a vision as well because it gives like picking an aim sets up the hierarchy of of concerns. Right. So if I've got an aim, then it naturally sorts out my life and it actually tells me what's important and what's not important, what's of service, what's not of service, what's resourceful, what's a time suck. What, you know, it, like, so you want to have a vision because it helps make sense of the, of the decisions you're in and the behavior that you're in as you're thinking about what's working, what's not working, what's wanted and needed all, always. Um, you you want to have a vision because it, it gives you, it gives you um, a sense of uh, being substantial as a leader because yeah, people are going to look. Yeah. I think it's like a vision, like a long-term vision. Absolutely. We're trying to build, you know, the more modern McKinsey, right? Like we're looking at McKinsey, old world strategy consultants. We're applying the product marketing principles of today's tech world and building that, that, uh, that future consulting company. But so I can go into details on, on that, but in general, I think the difference is like having that broad, that's still somewhat vague, frankly, right? Like you don't know the details of that, but you know, sure. the, the purpose of it, I suppose. Yep. But the everything in between, we need to have freedom to, to move and make wrong decisions and pivot. And, you yep. know, I think there needs to be ambiguity in order to do something that's unique and differentiated, I suppose. Yeah, well, there is ambiguity. And you want to be friends with it, I guess, is what I hear you saying. Yeah. I'm just going to say it a little bit differently. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it's on your toes more if you say it my way. Mm. Um, you're on your heels a little bit. Like, it seems like you like live in an apology about the conversation. Like you're like defending it instead of just like yeah. owning it. It's like, oh, no, no. Um, uh, uh, it sounds like you, I mean, we use this assessment tool called the Harrison assessment. It's not very well used in the U.S. Um, it's a big differentiator for our work. It, it actually gauges the only thing that affects performance. The only thing scientifically is preference, not personality. So most of the, the personality shit out there is just fun and entertaining, but it's not that useful. It's actually, I think, pretty dangerous. Um, but if you took the Harrison assessment, I'm sure your flexibility score will be very high. I'm sure your experimenting score will be very high. Um, and it's your preference. And it's great, great. But the people that have a lower experimenting score and have a high, there's a paradox in here, like experimenting versus persistence, like sticking with something just, you know, despite encountering difficulties. Um, if they have a high persistence score and a low experimenting score, they'll, 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 they won't like you. Or they'll judge you freely because you're flippant, man. You don't finish anything. You're always experimenting and trying new shit. Like, you know, he's, he's not committed, you know, but you got to create a narrative around the purpose for your experimenting nature because it's the most authentic thing for you is to say, hey, here's what I think we're going to do. Here's the big picture goal. We're going to be this new age McKinsey. And I don't know how it's all going to work, but I do know this and this and this, and we'll see. Well, we're going to, so we're going to, you know, so the more you honor the paradoxes, um, the more you don't defend how flexible you are and you stand in it like as like a strength that I would say that it is because otherwise they become stubbornly persistent and they just keep like 
you know, trying to do the old thing a little bit better instead of trying yeah. something new. You're great at trying something new. It's like, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's try, you know, and you, you can think quickly on your feet. You're naturally, you're an entrepreneur. A lot of people aren't like that. So you got to create a narrative where people find themselves, feel valued in their, in their desire for security, but then own the fact that in this context, they have to generate that because you're not going to do that for them. They got to yeah. own it. And they got to create it for themselves. And when they've got issues with that, they need to bring that to you. And you can help them find their own way um, and find their own security. And then they get up and just do what they're doing on a Monday. Yeah, that's a good reminder and good advice. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts. I know we only have five minutes left, and I'm sure you're a busy man. So we can we can make sure you, you have time here. But before we jump, uh, a couple things. One, I wanted to get your take on, I'm reading Good to Great, which is a book that everyone's probably sure. familiar with. One of the things that came up in that book that I thought was interesting is that, you know, looking at the the great companies versus just the good, these very charismatic, big personality, I put the company on my shoulders, leaders don't aren't as effective at growing companies that can that are sustained in greatness, right? So once right. they're basically once they're gone, then the company kind of folds. There's there's no right. way for a second person to step in. Um, right. Have you in your coaching career? Have you found that to be true? Oh, hundred yeah. percent. I, I call them I call them personality based companies. Um, and there's like um, they don't live by the principles; they live by personalities, mm. and that's that's a lot. Uh, only because most of the personalities that are at the top are are unpredictable. You know, back to most founders are maniacs. Most importantly, I would say this is that you don't teach, if that's your context, then be like the leader is the game. And there's aspects of that leader that aren't good and not that helpful. You know, to your point, maybe they don't think, you know, systematically. And they think, and they kind of, most high end leaders, they make decisions really intuitively. And you can't scale intuition. And so there's not enough analysis and there's not enough data and there's not enough, you know, I tell all my people, what you do most naturally, you teach most poorly. And I think that's gravity. So um, point being is that there's shit that a great leader does naturally that they don't even know why they do it. They're like unconsciously competent. They don't know why they're doing it, but you can't scale that. You can't mentor into that. You can't teach that. So you got to like slow down and get language for your genius. So that other people can practice it because they're not as good as you and you'll be busy judging them because they're not as good as you. But, you know, most founders are one of a kind in that way. They're really good. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we come across it all the time. And it's yeah. usually a lot of the pain of a founder because they even they would say they don't want to they don't want to have a company like that, but they're really busy. They're really busy building it. Yeah. So usually what's missing is um, analysis. What's missing is uh, of uh, an honest conversation about their own weaknesses and how, you know, people usually are successful despite their weaknesses, not because of their strengths. Like they're so good that their weaknesses aren't a problem early, and then mm. they become big enough that their weaknesses are on blast, like they're big, and they haven't generated enough humility in the process to really own that um, and ask for help. You know, like they're used to not having to ask for help, definitely not wanting to 
from an ego perspective. Most people, I know it for myself, I always need a lot more help than I want. I'd rather do it myself. I'd rather pull it off by myself. I feel like there's going to be some kind of extra credit at the end if I do it on my own. Um, but it's not the case. So, you know, to generate some humility. Most of them, most founders have a sense that um, uh, looking good is such a huge just natural tendency for us. Like, and they don't, they're, let me say this better. They haven't honored distinction and thought early. They need momentum and momentum looks like efficiency and efficiency looks like agreeableness where people, here's my idea. Here's my view. Just do what I'm asking you to do and do it faster. And you know what? That works. Until it doesn't work. And then if, yeah. but if you don't value diversity of thought, you're not going to have high talented people stay with you. You'll get yep. like doers that just, you know, don't ask questions or ask questions in private and gossip all day long. Um, but you don't, you know, consistently make ideas better because you've set up a dogmatic view. Yeah. You're not going to have people that can help you evolve the company and uh, right on. And they're just going to execute. Right on. Um, well, Adrian, thanks so much for taking so much time. Yeah, this man. It's been enlightening for me. It, our listeners just got a little like, they listened in on my coaching session, which is <laughs> interesting. <laughs> They're going to have learned a little bit about me as well. Um, this is great, man. Before we jump, how how can our listeners follow along your journey? Which in this case, you know, I always use that term journey, but yeah. like for you, it's, it's, it's real. You've definitely moved in a lot of different directions and you're on this journey. So how can folks follow you and follow your, your company and learn more? Yeah. People can actually jump into Instagram, adrian.k on Instagram. We're takenewground.com as a firm. Two fun ways to jump in. You know, we do a podcast called the Naked Leadership Podcast, me and, and two of my counterparts. And we talk about, uh, we talk about the principles. We talk about the thinking that's necessary, the, the approach. Like, it's not like, hey, do these. Here's your five steps because whatever, Google that shit. But what's most people's pain is in their approach and what they're thinking and what they're not thinking and the vulnerability in leadership. Anyway, we've done like, I don't know, we've been at that for five years or something, whole bunch of episodes called the Naked Leadership Podcast. If you're interested in something like this, um, there's an opportunity for you coming up. I was mentioning this four-day training called The Revenant Process. It is an accelerant for personal growth. So we've got the next one that's coming up end of October this year. Um, It's in Hawaii. There'll be like 35 founders in the room, most of which are founders. It's a no-holds-barred training. It's amazing. Um, I'll co-train it with Dan. Going to be at a beautiful location. Uh, The people will be amazing. And it's really around how to get a hold of yourself in new ways. So don't come if you think you got it all together because it'll be a waste of your time. If you're itching for something new, and if you, even if you don't know what that is and you want to come get in a place where you can look at yourself and explore yourself and ask yourself tougher questions and ha- therefore have a lot more joy out of it, um, come because it's perfect for you if you're in that context. So that's called The Revenant Process. Wearerevenant.com is that site. Or you can hit me up on Instagram and I'll send you all the info. So free stuff, Instagram, Naked Leadership Podcast. You want to invest a little bit of money in yourself and your team and in your future, come to one of our trainings. Um, or if you've got a company that's on the verge of something great or on the verge of something horrible, 
um, hit me up and we'll have a conversation about your company and uh, we'll have a good time. Promise you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Adrian. This has been great. Thanks for taking so much time with me. Um, of course, man. Hope to stay in touch. Yeah, can't wait. Cheers. Thanks, Devin. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time. Thank you.